from the Southern Oral History Program at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, this is Press Record, the podcast about the joys and challenges of learning history by talking to those who lived it. I'm Rachel Seidman. And I'm Carol Prince. All the people that have helped me, but overall to my parents, that they sacrificed their lives to bring me to this country, especially my father, and I know that he risked his life so many times. Dios me permite estar, digamos, acá, y ya soy ciudadano americano también, ¿verdad? Pero la estadía no fue fácil, la venida no fue fácil, ¿verdad? Este, hice 43 días de viaje para llegar a Estados Unidos. Eh, and I was like, okay, my parents brought me here for a reason. I had to suffer for a reason, but now, like, it's my responsibility, like, as a Latino who's here, who's able to go to school, and whose parents have able to provide her everything to give back to her community. I know that all the work that they have been doing, all the sacrifice of themselves, their lives, uh, the time, the money that they have invested is really going to be worth it. Welcome back to Press Record, everybody. Rachel, how are you? I'm great, Carol. How are you? I'm good. I'm really excited about our topic today. It's going to be a good one, right? Right. I actually can't believe we haven't featured this in Press Record yet. I know, considering what we're about to talk about is probably one of the most important projects the SOHP has been involved in over the past few years. Absolutely. So... As you might have gathered from the intro, uh, this project has to do with immigration. Uh, It's about a project called New Roots, Nuevas Raices, Voices from Carolina del Norte. And today we're going to dig into this project and talk about what makes it so important. So just to give a brief intro before we turn it over to the people that worked on this project, New Roots is a bilingual digital archive that contains the oral histories of Latin American migrants to North Carolina and also North Carolinians that have been involved uh, in working closely with immigrants in North Carolina. So most of this episode really gets into what this means through the perspectives of people who worked on the project. And as always, we'll feature oral histories out of our archives. Right. So I ended up talking to Lara Torres uh, and Maria Ramirez and uh, JC Voss, who were all involved in this project in a different way. So most of this podcast is actually going to consist of my conversation with them. It's been a real honor to work with Hannah Gill on this project, and um, her collection of these interviews has deepened the SOHP's ability to um, reach our mission of... That the SOHP has been in existence. It's always tried to amplify, you know, the voices on the margins of the South. And now that the South is changing, those voices are changing along with it. And this project adapts along with that change. And the amount of work and creativity that went into making that possible. Uh, And we should say that this project was supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities, for which we are deeply grateful. We are grateful to the National Endowment. And we want it to stay. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's such a, I mean, a collaboration between 
archivists and undergraduate students and graduate interviewers and community interviewers and, and IT professionals right. and website developers and yeah it's it took a large team to make this project possible it is really remarkable and unlike pretty much any other project out there that you literally can open up the website in either English or Spanish. I think what Hannah and her team are really hoping for is that these interviews will be put to use in many different ways, whether those are in, whether it's in K-12 classrooms or in public policy conversations. These um, voices are really important for lots of people to hear and to truly listen to, and so making this as accessible as possible is, has been their primary goal. Right. It's like totally in line with the motto we have here, which is you don't have to be famous for your life to be history. On that note, let's turn it over to Maria and Laura, who I sat down with. I'm Maria Ramirez, and I'm the bilingual documentation archivist for the Nearest Project. Uh, I'm Laura Villa. I am currently the outreach assistant for New Roots, which means that I promote the archive. Um, and I'm also a PhD student in health behavior in public health. If you met someone in an elevator who didn't know anything about New Roots um, or why it was important, what would, you, what would you tell them about New Roots and why it matters? I would say um, that it's an oral history uh, program. That that's the primary focus, and that it's important because it really captures um, a voice that perhaps is not regularly um, heard. <laughs> it's uh, there's the language gap. There's um, you know just like it tends to be like an like an invisible part of our community. And if you want to learn more about um, who Latinos are and what experiences they face, then this archive really captures that and makes it widely available, that's what I would say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. I would say also that it's a live record of the mm-hmm. present history, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you're a historian, so you know that <laughs> history can right. be traced back 7,000 years, but the, in, in, in the migration uh, to North Carolina is not that old. It's been right. 30 years uh, that this is happening. So we have the, the main actors here alive, right with their stories to ready to be told so it's just a collection of the present life and I mean we get very excited about every oral history now but I also think uh, what will this be or the value of this in a hundred years or in two hundred years no? what do you think the value will be I think it will be incredible imagine like I mean, so far, the population from 1990 to 2010 went from 1% Latinos to 10% Latinos. In North Carolina? In North Carolina. And we're expecting to see a little bit of a jump now in 2020. I mean, maybe 12%, 13%. I mean, I'm not a demographer, but I mean, just seeing how fast it's growing. Um, and and a big, another very important transition that I always tell people when I'm doing the outreach is, that 90% of the young people in our, Latinos young uh, Latino youth in North Carolina below the age of 18 are North Carolinians. Right. They were born here. When a teacher enters a classroom and sees a, a classroom full of Latino kids, 
I think the first thought is like, well, they are all immigrants. But when they, you realize that 90% are actually born here, there are North Carolinians, uh, that, that is a different uh, thing, no? And here's a clip from Manuel Rafael Gallegos Lerma talking about these major demographic shifts in a 2012 interview. In this excerpt, he's talking about Carborough Elementary Schools in a particular apartment complex called Abbey Court, which is mentioned in another oral history interview we'll get to in just a minute. Manuel was born in Mexico and is currently working on his PhD in sociology at UNC Chapel Hill. He has studied social networks in migrant labor markets, worked extensively with migrant laborers, and now serves as the director of the Human Rights Center of Chapel Hill in Carborough. But I think that the teacher that helped us there, I think she mentioned something about 59 or 69 families that live at Abbey Court from the elementary school. So I would imagine that many of them are indeed born in the U.S. You know, high school, middle school, I would not know. But with high school, I would be more hesitant to say that they're born in the States, although it could be very well happen because some of the people in Abbey Court have been there for more than 15, 16 years. So, you know, it's possible that some of them are born in the U.S. It's hard to tell them. I mean, it's something that they know very well not to talk about because of the consequences. So I imagine uh, a historian or somebody else, uh, maybe a Latino historian, in a hundred years trying to trace yeah. back the Latino history of uh, of North Carolina. I, I think this resource will be uh, invaluable. And I would say even in a personal level, I mean like being able to trace your own roots, like mm -hmm. thinking of a person really going and hearing their own ancestors, you know, explain what they went through, um, the experiences they had as immigrants. I think that that's amazing yeah. to know that you're a part of that, that you can give someone that experience. Perhaps. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, I mean, I mean, I'm Mexican. Yeah. I moved here almost ten years ago, and I'm pregnant for the audience. <laughs> uh, and I'm thinking on my own boy, like, what is he gonna look back and he could like listen to these oral histories, no? Uh, he's gonna be a little confused because <laughs> his father is Greek, he's Mexican, and he's North Carolinian, no? So. Um, I, I think that's, that's very important to, to collect those oral histories. Are there interviews in the archive or stories that stand out to you? I know you did, uh, Maria, a lot of the processing yeah. of the interviews. Uh, the one that at least shocked me, not shocked me, but kind of showed me my own kind of narrow-mindedness in a way, was um, when I started working, I... I saw the story about the corner, which if you don't know, it's a spot in Carborough. So the corner is an environment that is a strip of dirt that is um, maybe at its widest five feet um, from the road to the fence, and at its most narrow, maybe two and a half to three feet. And the, this is uh, right across the street from Abbey Court. Uh, condominiums. The corner sprang up about 15 years ago due to its proximity to Abbey Court. People could, you know, live in Abbey Court where rent was relatively cheap and walk across the street and look for work. Um, many of the day laborers uh, come to that corner. Unfortunately, these men are every day um, subject to the weather and coming from much warmer climates, even the mild winters of Chapel Hill, uh, you know, nobody wakes up in February or, or December 
when it's 28 degrees outside and there's frost and feels like they want to go stand on the corner and wait for work that might not come. Uh, when I came to Carborough, there was an anti-lingering ordinance at the corner that had been passed due to some uh, complaints in the community, Car which Carborough, which sees itself as fairly liberal and progressive and accepting, and said, well, if the community is afraid that some, there, is some, uh, nuisance, there are some nuisance crimes being committed, like loitering, and then we will put this sign here that says that men can't be here before 5 a.m. in the morning or after 11 a.m. in the morning. So basically men that were um, out there on the corner, vulnerable men, kind of an invisible population looking for work, were told that they could only be out there for certain hours because the rest of the community would prefer that the corner be vacant, which was unconstitutional, and luckily the town decided to overturn it thanks to some joint efforts between the Human Rights Center and the Southern Coalition for Social Justice and the North Carolina Justice Center. I lived right next to the corner, and... I didn't know that that's what it was. I, I lived my entire day doing my own routine and I saw it and it was almost like in the peripheral. But until I sat down and I was processing this interview and the, 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 I don't quite remember who it was, but I was describing basically the place where I live. Maria's talking about David Rigby, a sociologist who's originally from Santa Cruz, California. He specifically looks at work and occupation and the labor market and has spent a lot of time with migrant workers in Carborough, where he now lives. A lucky day labor will um, have two days of work a week. And generally, there's an informal minimum wage of around $10 an hour. And while they're waiting for work, they'll trade stories about, uh, you know, their work experiences with some employers, how much money they were paid. And in this way, um, skills are transferred, and also men learn who not to work for. But that basically is the extent of the protection that these men have from labor abuses. It sort of shocked me to realize, oh my God, this, how did I not ever wonder or have this curiosity for why, why, is that, why is that corner always, you know, with people there sort of seemingly waiting for something? Yeah, is there any... Yeah, and there's one... Um, from a young woman that she's Guatemalan Mayan um, and she tells her story When people ask you where you're from what do you say? I say that I I say that my parents are from Guatemala and then I say but I was born here um, so I think the first thing that comes to mind to me is that, uh, I don't know, I affiliate with what my parents are, and so I say Guatemalan, um, but then I do clarify that I am American, that I was born in America. And then now how she has to, um, not struggle, but, like, deal with their multiple identities, no? Being, play, uh, being put from the outside as a Latina, but also being indigenous, in, in Guatemala and America. This is Yesenia Pedro Vicente, who was born and raised in Morganton, North Carolina. In Morganton, there's a well-established Guatemalan Mayan immigrant community. Vicente was raised speaking Spanish, um, as opposed to her parents' native language of Ganjobal. So in the U.S., I do identify as Mayan or Latino. It depends. Mm. 
usually I have found myself that in the academic context, I, I am Mayan, or even back home in my church community, I am Mayan. Um, it is once I'm surrounded by other students that come from Latin American countries that I then group us all into Latinos. There's a certain Latino experience that I think is shared amongst people that speak Spanish or are of Latin American descent when you're growing up in America. Um, and I, 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 this is kind of a joke, but there's a Twitter account that's called Latino Kid Problems. And sometimes I'll look at what they put up there and I resonate with what they say, whether it be a Salvadoran or Mexican um, person who tweeted something about it. And I laugh because I, you know, I find myself being like, oh yeah, that happened to me too. But then when I'm back home and it's very much just a Guatemalan Mayan uh, population, then I'm, I realize, oh, I am Mayan. And... You know, everyone here is also Mayan. We all still share very much like the same foods, um, and even though the traditional dress is different, um, the the cut of it, the corte, the blusa, it's all the same. When I am in Guatemala, though, I am very much more American than Guatemalan, if that makes sense. Um, when I spent the summer with the host family, but I could tell even with my own education and. Um, the type of music I listen to and the style of clothing that I wear that it's more American mm -hmm. and so my host mom um, joked one day that she's like oh eres como una gringa um, and then she laughed and she's like no pero no, no exactamente um, so I'm kind of in this between in between where if I'm placed in a Guatemalan context I'm more American than Guatemalan in the country itself but when I'm here I'm not exactly American. And so all her multiple identities, what you're saying, uh, that are at the core of, I think, the, the political and the social life in the United States, no? Um, so who, who are you and, and where, where you're coming from and, and what languages do you speak? And of course, I mean, we're assuming that everybody that is Latino speaks Spanish. And I just said right. that there's a big group that don't. I mean, for example, when we had visitors from Mexico to visiting scholars from Mexico, and when I was telling them that a lot of schools are bilingual, they couldn't believe it. They're like, how? Like, they just had Spanish class, and I told them, no, no, it's fully Spanish immersion. If you talk to kids from many areas in North Carolina, the kids are bilingual. And that is a big shift uh, from other places and times of migration where actually Spanish was pushed away, suppressed. Parents didn't want their kids to learn Spanish because it was embarrassing. Um, and that's how many generations lost, lost the Spanish. And now it's like embraced. Everybody wants to speak it. And um, that's, that's, that shows a change, uh, which I think the South is living. Regarding assimilation, do you think that your parents ever feel like they've lost something by moving here in terms of culture or social aspects or language even? Um, I think that we talk about this all the time because I think that sometimes when I was little, um, I struggled with kind of that feeling that I was losing like part of my culture because it's something that my parents always instilled, never forget like where you come from and um, I grew up in a great environment in Mexico, so it was something that I really valued. My brother and I would be very different if we had stayed in Mexico, but we've always, like my mom 
didn't let us stop speaking Spanish. We only speak Spanish at home. We always go back in the summer if we can. And so kind of in that, we've kind of kept as much as we can. And I think we've kind of tried to like take what we can from being here and then kind of stay with what we can. That was Adriana Iturbide, who was an undergraduate student at UNC during the time of her interview in 2013. And on the subject of language, the next question I asked uh, Maria and Laura was how much work it took to create a fully bilingual archive and webpage. Many hours. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what's so interesting about this archive is that you can actually see like mirror sites. So you can either browse the website in English or Spanish. And I, don't, I haven't seen that a lot in um, other digital archives. Um, if the, the work of translating abstracts, correcting them, then uh, we integrated uh, some like themes that you can browse by and we had to provide translations for all of those. So yeah, it was a very labor-intensive pro- process, but I think it, it's really worth it because um, being able to provide materials in the language that um, a lot of the interviewees originally provided <laughs> the interview in, Um, really allows them to kind of feel like this is their archive and they can feel like they're putting something not just to be closed off to a language that they don't quite fully grasp. So I think that it's it's creating that whole concept of a more inclusive archive. There are a lot of nuts and bolts to creating a more inclusive archive. Here, J.C. Voss, our archivist at the SOHP, talks about her role in this project and why accessibility is so important in processing oral histories. I'm J.C. Voss. I'm the coordinator of collections for the Southern Oral History Program. Uh, I'm a trained archivist. Um, I've been working with Hannah on New Roots since 2011 when I started with the SOHP. She's been doing this project since around 2006 or 2007. A few years ago, she got a grant from the NEH um, to really amp up accessibility for the collection and um, to do a lot of different things to make the materials more visible and more usable for a broader audience. So as far as the grant-funded project goes, we developed a bilingual digital oral history archive and information system. It's important for these interviews to actually be available um, in the places where so many of these stories are coming from. We didn't want the interviews to only be available to a scholarly audience at UNC, you know, just within the academy. We wanted this to be available to the communities where these stories actually are rooted in. So to make that possible, we developed um, additional metadata fields where we started to describe the interviews um, with Spanish language keywords and other basic metadata in Spanish. Um, I don't speak Spanish, so that was entirely Maria and Labra, but I um, I helped think through the ways that we would want to do that and which fields were important to um, translate and to sort of think about how to arrange that um, for the greatest accessibility on the on the new website. Without the description, none of this stuff is accessible in the first place. So that's kind of where, that's like one of my main interests, um, has been one of my main interests in working with the SOHP is really thinking about oral history metadata and how to actually get this stuff beyond the archives and out of the database and into the user's hands. And so um, if something isn't described at all, or if it's not described well, or if it's not described in a language that someone 
can read and understand, then people aren't going to use it. Um, and I'm kind of of the mindset that if people aren't using this stuff, then why do we collect it in the first place? And so I, I really strive to make everything as um, accessible and um, try to make it as usable as possible because I think that's where the real value in it lives is when stuff is actually being used and listened to. And here, Maria and Laura talk more about creating a bilingual archive and address some challenges with translation. And then, I mean, Maria is bilingual, uh, a native Spanish, I'm a native Spanish, and Beatriz at the Institute for Study of America, she's Puerto Rican, native Spanish speaker, so we were always like, how do you say this in Spanish? <laughs> because there are terms that are very hard to translate, that don't have a direct translation, like uh, K-12, that's a whole concept that is very American, so how mm. do you translate that into uh, Spanish? Uh, and we were always joking, like, Pan-American Spanish, because also it's not that all the region speaks the same Spanish. Uh, Or how do you say community engagement? That's another term that is really hard to translate in Spanish. And it's it's not it's by any means perfect. No, I mean there's there are challenges that we couldn't address. So, for example, some interviews are Spanglish. That's how people speak. Um, Well, first of all, we don't translate the actual interview. It's either it's in the language that is originally conducted. So what we translate is the abstract. So people okay. know the content of the interview, but not the actual interview. That would require an immense amount of money and work. But there are some, within that limitation, there are also some interviews that are Spanish. Este, yo pienso que porque en high school habían más hispanos. Este, era más libre, más open entonces este tuve la oportunidad de conocer muchas personas entonces es ahí cuando yo empecé a juntarme con los hispanos y los americanos y hablaban entre entre ustedes en español por lo general o un poco de spanglish o <coughs> en español uh-huh. Entre nosotros hablamos español. ¿Y notaba algunas palabras por ahí en, en inglés que, que sí. vieron? Sí, sí, sí. So, one of the questions I wanted to ask Maria and Laura is if the meaning of this project had changed at all for them since the change in the United States presidential administration. Mm, well, not for us. Uh, I mean, I see, I, I, since I work closely with the materials more in a per, uh, processing sort of sense, mm-hmm. I've noticed that, at least for this semester, a lot of students are tackling that topic. And um, I think that that kind of signals the, that the interviews maybe have changed their, like the, their perspective on what the interview itself is. And maybe they have different um, kind of, impulse for why they want to share their story. It wasn't always as political. And it's interesting because for us, these issues are not new. Um, The issues that the immigrant and Latino community in particular face are not new and the challenges, um, they are just highlighted right now uh, in the public sphere, no? Everybody's talking about it, some not in the best ways, but um, so it's, 
maybe is that putting the project a little bit more on the spot than it was before, um, which is good. I mean, if this serves the purpose of promoting the archive, well, let's do it, no? Because that, that's the mm -hmm. purpose, not to open dialogues. Actually, that, that's one of the comments we got in the last uh, workshop we did with teachers. It's like, this is so important and so useful uh, because what we need is open dialogues about these topics. You really are not exposed to the hardships of people in the States. And I think to some extent, at least personally, I can say that you, I have to some extent undermined the hardships of people in the U.S. Of immigrants in yes. the U.S.? Yeah, you know, you think that, you know, when you go to the U.S., you know, you have it better. You can make more money, it's a better life, you can have better houses and all these cars and all that sort of thing. But in reality, you know, they come here and they're exploited, they're mistreated uh, widely. Uh, they have no rights. At least that's what they make them believe when it comes down to labor. And so it's, it's just, you know, the pervasiveness of that, I think, is quite shocking. So what has been the most rewarding part of working on this project, both personally and professionally? I mean, I think I am, I feel like this project has just been amazing for me personally. Um, being able to hear these stories, I mean, really makes me uh, reflect on my own experience. Because uh, I came from Venezuela when I was nine years old. And, uh, you know, my family faced a lot of difficulties, uh, both getting accustomed to the culture and kind of fitting in. Um, so I, I feel that this project just has given me an opportunity to hear other people's stories and sort of not feel so alone sometimes, because um, in, in a lot of ways I feel like for many years I sort of just ignored the fact that I was an immigrant and sort of just tried to just become more focused on school and things that um, allowed me to adapt to the United States. And just to be able to really reflect on my past has helped me in a personal sense. Another aspect that's kind of interesting is that this project is really pushing like uh, the boundaries of what an archive is. And um, really the idea of digital archives is sort of new. And um, we're still sort of learning how to um, kind of open the doors and really bring people into them, like using material, the materials that in the past really would never have visited a physical archive. It can really enhance just um, inclusivity and really making people feel that um, they have access to all of this knowledge that maybe they did in the past and in an easier way. I, I feel very proud of being part of, the, of this work. No? Um, when I talk to other Mexicans here or when I go back to Mexico and share this work with my family, I'm always very excited about it. It's like, look, I mean, this is happening in North Carolina. It's like a little piece of home there. I think that the main thing I want people to take away is that they should hear it themselves. They should go to the website. They should um, see it with their own eyes. And I mean, we're always open to feedback. So <laughs> anything that they can offer can only help. So we always say this is a live archive. It will keep growing. Thanks for listening to Press Record. Special thanks to Laura Villa, Maria Ramirez, JC Voss, Hannah Gill, and the team at New Roots. 
As always, we want to hear from you. You can subscribe and rate us on iTunes or email us at pressrecordsohb at gmail.com. Tweet us at SOHP Oral History or like and comment on our Facebook page. Just search Press Record Podcast. We love hearing your feedback. Make sure to stay tuned and we'll see you next time on Press Record.